Good afternoon, everyone. I think we have all the speakers here. Um, uh, I think so. So uh, I want to just welcome everyone to our FOMC space. Uh, for those unaware, uh, I'm sure you are aware, we had another bank failure. Uh, we are at what many may call the precipice of the Fed's decision, one more hike and a pause or pause and see effects. So with that, I kind of want to welcome everyone for starting their afternoon with us. I'm Unusual Wales, and I'm happy to have Nicholas help lead the conversation. Nicholas, if you can. How's it going, everybody? Excited, as always, to have all these great macro speakers here with us today. A lot of repeat faces you're used to seeing on these panels. Super excited for that. Now, all panelists, as you know, and those who frequent our spaces know, I really like to keep these spaces open for discussion. I like to have a lot of discourse. I like to get a lot of points of view on every topic we cover. So please, if you want to add uh, to anything somebody said, or maybe even disagree, please just throw up that hand raise emoji on the spaces, and we'll get right to you next after that. I would love to get a lot of discourse. We have a lot of things to cover today. So what we're going to do here at the top of the show is just go through our panelists, give a little introduction, let you guys plug anything you want that you're working on or that you have put out or have coming out. We're happy to pin that to the top of the space here. So let's get started here. First off, Joseph Wang, the incumbent Fed guy of Twitter. Want to welcome you back, Joseph, our go-to Fed guy, headed the trading at the Fed's open desk, has a great introductory book on central banking called Central Banking 101, is the CIO at Monetary Macro, and just launched a bunch of macro courses. Hey, Joseph, how are you doing today? Hey, Nick. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks so much to be on the panel with such great guests. And I also want to note for the audience to congratulate Anishua Wales, because as was reported today, Congress is introducing a bill to ban trading by Congress members. And a lot of this was because of reporting that unusual whales spearheaded. So that's, I think that's a really, really good thing that's happening right now. Um, so appearances of insider trading are not really good for, for our country. So uh, thanks so much for all those, for your efforts. Hey, we appreciate those kind words as always, Joseph. Thank you so much. It's really nice to see, you know, the headway that Unusual Wales is making. Next, we've got Jem Carson. Jem is a leading volatility expert and an expert on croissants and jam. He can explain the ins and outs of Charm and Vanna and how to use options in a changing market and how those options change the market. He's a founder of Kai Volatility, which you should all be subscribed to immediately. And check out his speaking on YouTube and Spotify. Lots of appearances from him on various podcasts and news outlets. Jem, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. I always learn as much as uh, kind of educate on here. Uh, we're at an interesting crossroads. Excited to talk about it. Excited to have you, man. Thank you. Next, we've got the last bear standing. Another friend of the spaces, Les Bear, is an expert on markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly Substack. If you're not subscribed to that Substack, go do that now since he cannot share it on Twitter with the link issue we've got now. Welcome back, Last Bear. How are you doing, man? 
Hey, thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Click through the tiny URL links, which is an unfortunate reality that we live with today. But yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's really excited um, for uh, an exciting uh, FOMC meeting here and, um, you know, speaking with the great panelists that we have today. So looking forward to it. As am I. Thank you, Last Bear. Next, we've got Bob Elliott, the CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater, and the all-time leader in useful Twitter threads during a banking crisis. He's a friend of these spaces, so let's give him a warm welcome. Welcome back, Bob. Hey, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, an exciting time. Uh, you know, this, uh, this banking uh, crisis never ceases to uh, keep things interesting, certainly. So uh, that and the macro, we've got a lot to talk about. Thanks for coming as always, Bob. And we've got one more panelist, a late joiner here. Thanks for coming in at last second. Michael Cow, the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager of Cow Family Office. Having worked previously at Acanthos Capital Management, he's an expert in commodities, index arbitrage, and dynamic hedging. And looking exceptionally cool during interviews, Michael. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah, thank you for uh, taking me last minute. Um, I have to admit, I'm probably going to do more listening than speaking today, as I'm just getting back from a two week, uh, two weeks of intensive travel. So, um, but yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about, though. So, thank you. Hey, happy to have you, exhausted or otherwise, Michael. And and again, of course, if anything you want to add, feel free to raise your hand. Happy to get you. So I think we can jump right into things here. So as always, before we get started, let's take a quick look at where things stand since our last panel. At the last FOMC meeting, rates were raised 25 bips again, marking nine straight increases to borrowing costs. The U.S. GDP growth slowed to an annualized adjusted rate of 1.1%, far below the expectations of 2%, showing slowed momentum. Core PCE remains elevated, largely in part due to labor costs. And as you all know, four large regional banks have failed since March, which we will be deep diving shortly. And the debt ceiling standoff persists. So let's start right off here with you, Jim. Where in the heck are we in the rate hike cycle? We'll let you start, and then we're going to do the whole panel. Look, uh, there is a dramatic lag. A lot of people talk about it to monetary policy. Some say 18 months. Um, I think you know somewhere between a year and two years is appropriate. Um, a lot of, and I've mentioned this before, there's about you know, $450 trillion of long assets. Only $100 trillion of those are equities. The other $350 trillion operate at a dramatic lag. Not to mention even equity demand with buybacks operates at a dramatic lag. So the Fed knows this. Um, it is trying to get a pulse on how what's happening out six months from now, right? Uh, you know, housing starts uh, was you know, multifamily was up 22% last month. That's not because of what's happening now. That's not because of what happened a year ago, right? And, and so the question is, now that we're 5% into this, what's happening? And that's a tough thing to gauge based on kind of uh, short-term data. Um, I think there's some confusion and debate going on at the Fed right now. Uh, there's multiple, dif you know, differentiating opinions as we work through that lag. And my guess is the solution will ultimately end up on let's wait and see, right? Uh, that doesn't mean they're not going to do a quarter today. I, they'll do a quarter today. But, but I do think that the party line is, is likely to be, you know what, we're doing a quarter, um, you know, let's wait and see what this does. And I think 
that is at baseline dovish and will be seen as dovish by the market, despite their now need to kind of talk, you know, back up yields in the back of the curve. So I, I really think, you know, they're, they're going to want to pause. They're going to want to take a look, but they, they're going to really be heavy handed and trying to tell the market we are not uh, going to cut. Now, uh, we'll see about that. But that's the messaging coming forward, I believe. Thank you, Jim. Does anybody have anything to add to what Jim said? Maybe any any echoing of his sentiment? So I agree with what Jim mentioned. I think if you look at market pricing, the market pricing over the past few months has always been very eager to price in rate cuts. In so when the Fed, if the Fed were to suggest some pause in looking at the data, you know immediately the market is going to take that and run with it. Now just to level set a little bit. As you mentioned, Nick, inflation, according to the Fed's favorite measure, core PCE, is still really high. You know, it's over 4%. Now, when you think about the channels through which monetary policy is supposed to act, it doesn't seem like it's working as well as, as I think was ex- would be expected. Uh, for example, first off, monetary policy can affect aggregate demand by lowering asset prices, reduce wealth, reduce money to spend, reduce demand. But here we are, uh, S&P pretty elevated. Risk assets basically largely recovered. The tumble we had last year, still not at all-time highs, of course. Or if you look at interest rate-sensitive sectors of the economy, like housing, um, house prices seem to be stabilizing and uh, rising in some areas. If you look at home builders, they're all at all-time highs. So you would expect there to be a substantial slowdown there, but I think because of low inventory, that that's not super happening. And again, another channel was dollar strength. Dollar has been weakening a lot these past few months, and that that's all conventionally how we think of monetary policy as acting and at the same time um you know we're at five percent so it doesn't seem to be working as well as the fed thought and again looking at fundamental data like wages most recently employment cost index accelerating last quarter so the fed is in a tough place right now because its tools don't seem to be working as well as expected i think and we'll definitely touch on all of that again as well. Bob, I saw you unmuted. Get your input here, and then we'll kick it over to Michael. Yeah, Bennett. I mean, I think this is um, – I think those of us who, who follow the markets and, uh, and the economy on a day-to-day basis can easily lose sight of sort of the, 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 the basic uh, picture of where we are. And I think uh, uh, Fed guy covered it. Well, but at the at the gist of it, like nominal growth in the first quarter was seven and a half percent. The productive capacity of the economy is, you know, one and a half percent, give or take. What that means is either, you know, real production conditions are tightening, which, you know, overall the economy has to either tighten or inflation has to uh, make the gap between that nominal growth and the productive capacity of the economy and that gap is leading to an unemployment rate, which is at secular lows and is leading to an inflation rate, which is well above the Fed's target and not showing enough signs. There are maybe a few signs, but not enough signs of moving down towards target anytime soon. And so when you put that together, um, you know, there's, it looks like there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think the main question from the Fed's perspective is how much do they bet on the long, long and variable lags 
um, to uh, resolve the circumstance or uh, you know, at, the, at the cost of the risk that inflation becomes increasingly entrenched in the economy, which is what we're seeing. And so that's really the trade-off is how much are they going to bet on being proactive to ensure that entrenchment doesn't pers- entrenchment doesn't persist versus betting on the lags. And, you know, the Fed is not particularly good at predictive uh, at their predictive ability. And so, you know, I think they're probably going to skew towards what they see and responding to what they see relative to. Mike, we'll go ahead and see your hand and then Jim, I'll get your input there as well. And we'll keep plugging along here. Uh, three b- uh, brief themes I just wanted to touch on and maybe build a little bit on uh, Joseph's comments on how the, the Fed's tools are not working so well. Uh, I, I've been in this higher for longer camp for, for quite a while, and I too agree that um, you know risk assets uh, at least don't seem to buy that, um, seem to be pricing in quite a uh, fast pivot which I don't agree with for a number of reasons. But I want to point out um, the last Substack post that I wrote about two weeks ago before I went on vacation was was talking about um, this geopolitical aspect of the surprise uh, OPEC cut and how I thought that, you know, in an effort to uh, sort of skirt short-term pain in the oil market, uh, it would actually potentially backfire um, on OPEC longer term in uh, making the oil market more elastic. But as I've been chewing on this, I actually think that perhaps this is exactly what OPEC wants because OPEC does not want a flyaway oil market. I've been, you know, I, for years I've been thinking that at some point this decade we're going to have a uh, supply demand singularity point where. Uh, OPEC loses control of the market due to, you know, years of, um, you know, decreased investment in the sector. But I think that's really been pushed out because I think spare capacity is significantly higher. But I want to go back to this, my my comment with respect to how it affects Fed policy. I really think that um, MBS's um, visceral hatred for this administration is coloring OPEC policy disproportionately. Because the last CPI print, uh, you know, did not um, actually. I'm not sure. I think maybe this uh, April CPI did in, uh, did take into account uh, the, the 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 impact of the Fed cut. Regardless, um, oil prices have spiked up and then right back down. But I think because of the lag in the data, um, it's going to keep uh, Jerome Powell. Uh, on his toes with respect to commodity price uh, inflation, uh, uh, for one. Um, Number two is I had this wild thought this morning that um, listening to a podcast about how, uh, you know, in a way, uh, there are interesting ways how rate hikes may may actually be uh, spurring the economy in certain ways. And uh, I, sometime last year, I posted, I tweeted out about how, isn't it ironic that the same baby boomer fed heads that got us into this mess are now creating a situation that is directly benefiting the 
richest demographic of all, that is the baby boomers, that tend to have uh, higher proportions of their net worth in fixed income, which for years have not been uh, earning anything, right? And now all of a sudden, you can earn 5% risk-free, debt ceiling notwithstanding. So uh, I think that's another uh, thing to talk about and think about. Thank you, Michael. Go ahead, Jim, and then we'll move on to the next question. Yeah, I mean, I started this out by talking about what the Fed is likely to do. That doesn't mean what they're likely to do is going to work. Um, I think they're looking at they, they're stopping and looking at the economy and saying, what is cyclically happening? Are we having this success in slowing down this economy? Because that's how they've worked for the last 40 years. And that cyclical kind of Fed effect has been all that has mattered. But the reality is, as I've mentioned in other conversations, this is not about the inflation here is not about cyclical strength or weakness anymore. That is a blunt instrument that it is not solving the problem. And as we've seen, labor strength and broadly sticky inflation has been, been incredibly sticky um, and will continue to be regardless of the cyclical weakness that we see. What happened during the 70s was not... Um, you know, just, uh, you know, it wasn't GDP weakness. Yes, we had three recessions, but GDP grew above trend. It was margin compression that was driven by a lot of things, including higher interest rates, ironically. And that kind of, you know, we see that strength being pushed through through physical policy, whether it's the employee retention credit or any of the other things that we're continuing to see uh, coming from the fiscal side, supporting labor and broadly uh, people on the bottom of the distribution. Um, onshoring, deglobalization, all those things are huge forces that are continuing to underpin that labor strength and uh, domestic production um, that, is, uh, that is totally going against trend to, you know, in a secular way against this, you know, cyclical economic weakness strength argument. So everybody's looking at cyclical. Are we going down? Are we going into a recession? Um, and, and that's what the Fed's looking at too. Um, unfortunately, that's not what matters. And, I, and ironically, by increasing interest rates, we're, we're making these secular issues that are driving structural inflation worse. Um, those two counter effects are likely to lead to stagflation. There's that word and it's what nobody's talking about, but it's the worst case outcome. It's a case where we get a recession, a minor one is still demand pushed, though. Domestically, labor, uh, you know, is still relatively strong. And yes, inflation comes down a bit, but stays well, well above that 2% Fed target and continues to force the Fed back in into what is an already weak economy. So I think that's the big picture as we look forward. Right now, everybody's focused on the recession. Is it a recession? Is it not? But uh, you know, the real story here happens when people begin to wake up to the fact that this is not a cyclical story. Thank you, Jim. And you actually touched on a lot of things that I'm going to want to dive into here in a bit. But first, let's touch a little bit more on the rate hike here. So according to their March projections, Fed officials seem to believe that interest rates will peak in a target range of five to five and a quarter percent before pausing. FedWatch has a 25 bips hike at 86% right now with the current rate at 4.75 to 5% 
This has many speculating that today's rate hike may be the final hike, followed by a pause. So last bear, what are you seeing in the current market? Is this the last rate hike? And do you expect to see another 25 bips hike as many project? And also, do you have any other comments on what the panel has just spoken about as well, last bear? Yeah, sure. I think that it's likely that 25 basis points happens today, if just for the reason that it's what's widely expected and um, sort of priced into the market and the Fed will just take that if it's given to them um, without trying to make a surprise um, and caught, you know, throwing the script off, so to speak. But I do think that this is probably the last pause, at least of this immediate term of the cycle. It's possible that after, you know, a period of, of a pause, depending on where inflation goes, they might have to consider raising rates. But I think the number one thing on the Fed's uh, perspective right now um, is financial stability over inflation at this point. Um, if you consider what's going on in the banking sector, I know that there's a ton of opinions about how important or not important that is. But at the, at the end of the day, if, if rates were at zero, then none of these banks would have failed. Um, and even if the, if the long end of the curve was even at, at the levels of the short end of the curve, it's obviously historically inverted right now. But if you had long rates at 5%, it would make these banking issues significantly worse um, and would you know, put, a lot of, put, put more banks insolvent on a mark-to-mark basis if you look at the value of, of their assets. And I think that the Fed is absolutely um, concerned about that. Um, and thinking about that as, as they make their monetary policy, I think they've been pretty clear about having, you know, getting to 5% as kind of being the, the tip of this wave. And I think that they'll probably stick with that, um, especially given that while inflation is higher than, than they would like it to be, um, there has been you know, signs of uh, deceleration across a number of different categories, including some of the more lagging categories like rent and, and shelter inflation. And if you look at loans and leases and, and bank credit, it was um, increasing at a, at a very high rate in 2022, one that would have been inflationary and probably added to the inflation pressures of 2022 had it continued. Um, but really since the past six months or so, you, you have seen a significant de- deceleration in the rate of loan growth at banks, um, which I think the Fed is, is happy to see. But um, now verging on the point of outright contraction and in, in bank credit, um, I think that they're at the point where they can recognize, you know, the lagging effects that, that we've talked about and are ready to at least uh, take some time and, and see what happens over the coming months. Thank you, Last Bear. Does anybody have any comments before we move on to the next question here? You gave me a pretty good tie-in to a topic on banking. I do. I do have a comment. Um, yeah, please. You know, maybe, maybe I would push back a little bit on the notion of uh, long rates potentially be being that bad because last year Joseph and I, you remember, we we talked about the idea of a potential bear steepener as an out of the box strategy that the Fed uh, might pursue in conjunction with the Treasury. Obviously, the Fed can't influence long rates directly. But I wrote a thread talking about how, you know, if they if they engineered a a steep yield curve with long rates higher, it would obviate the need for them to use the very blunt tool of just Fed funds. And my concern at the time in writing that thread was exactly what we're experiencing right now, which is where right, right now, which is when you've got an inverted yield curve and you've got Fed funds so high 
there's a number one, there's a huge amount of floating rate, floating rate debt out there. And by the way, that shoe has not dropped yet. The leveraged loan market, I think, is going to be a problem because the borrowers at LIBOR or SOFR plus 500 at the beginning of the year just saw their interest expense shoot up from 500%, sorry, 5% to essentially 10 plus percent, right? Uh, and that's and that's a big chunk of the overall corporate debt market. Um, the the other thing is that with with respect to banks, yes, even though with long with higher long rates, it causes uh, mark to market losses on long lived um, assets. Um, it a a it allows the Fed, I would argue, to uh, stay at a lower uh, front end curve, and so by having a normally shaped yield curve. You, you still have positive NIM. Here we have the worst of both scenarios, right? Where you've, you've got, you know, a steeply inverted yield curve um, and, you know, banks have suffered losses on, on uh, you know, their assets. Uh, the shoe hasn't fallen on floating rate uh, exposures um, and the banks have essentially negative NIM. So they have no ability to earn their way out. So that that was my concern with this this approach in the first place, but I, I recognize there's no there's no easy solution here. Thank you, Michael Lesper. Do you have any response to that before we move on? I would I would only add that I think that the, if the Fed wanted to, one thing that I've written about recently is just the the uh, the dot plot, which um, you know at the last meeting in, in March when they put out the most recent dot plot. Still showing the the long run estimate at at two and a half percent, and it's actually interesting over the course of the history of the dot plot, which is about ten years old at this point. That has gone from four percent when it when it first came out in two thousand twelve, and has sort of gradually fallen down to to two and a half percent where they hold it today, um, despite obviously having a higher federal funds rate than at any point in in that prior period. Um, so the Fed is kind of guiding via the dot plot to an inverted yield curve. And I think part of that is because they don't want to see, um, it's because they, 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 they want the long end to stay in check and not put additional pressure on these sort of longer duration asset values, bond prices, that sort of thing. Um, and the hope that they can sort of stamp out inflation in, in the front end. But that was the only other point that I would add. Thank you, Last Bear. So I'll jump right along here and and let's get a little bit into, into some of the banking and treasury problems. So for those who don't know, Janet Yellen and the U.S. Treasury said that they will launch the first buyback program since 2000. Bob, you recently said in a tweet that, quote, the regional bank crisis at this point is not primarily a credit problem. It's a policy problem. Bring back TLGP and its result. Bob, can you break that down for us? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there are, uh, uh, as Michael highlighted, there's some, some uh, there's cyclical dynamics that are negatives for the regional banks related to, you know, a slowing of the provision of credit uh, and credit losses that uh, the the regional banks will likely take on their existing stock of loans and, you know, rising uh, deposit rates that will likely compress NIMS to some extent as well. But that <coughs> set of circumstances is, is um, 
eminently manageable as it has been through you know previous cycles where banks have faced similar conditions that doesn't mean that no banks will fail it doesn't mean that bank earnings won't be weak or poor but given the fact that we have you know some of the best capitalized banks that we've ever had you know in 50 years and if we were just facing that set of circumstances this would you know this would be like a crummy time to be running one of those banks but not a systemic risk I think the issue that we face today is the fact that there are there is not a uh, regulatory framework in place that is sufficient to that's sufficiently modernized to handle uh, the the banking needs of particularly those depositors who have transaction needs but you know are above the two hundred fifty thousand dollar cap. Those those small businesses, let's say, I'm not talking about, you know, Apple or something. I'm talking about, you know, people with 50 employees who are paying payroll every two weeks. You know, those businesses traditionally aren't banked by the big banks, are banked by the regionals and the small banks. And, um, you know, often can have, you know, and are not making bets on interest rates. They're not using their deposits for savings vehicles or anything like that. Those are the types of, uh, businesses that face a particularly acute dynamic right now, which is when they see the stocks of whatever regional bank or small bank that they're putting their money into starting to go down, their immediate move is for to pull out their money and try to move it to anywhere they can that isn't under a speculative attack. And that's creating a that's creating bank runs not because of some fundamental, meaningful, fundamental reassessment of the bank, of a given bank's creditworthiness. It's a bank run that's a function of, uh, of speculation. And that is, uh, you know, that is not a good thing for anybody because that's just, that's both creating risk to the banking system, but also destroying aggregate franchise value and creating more meaningful risk uh, of the FDIC needing to take over banks and resolve them, which is a net negative for the taxpayer. And so what we have right now is we have a bad policy. We have a, a fine, not great, but fine regional and small bank system uh, that could totally withstand this, what, what, they, what it faces them on a forward-looking basis, but a policy-driven set of bank runs. And that's what has to get resolved is the current regulatory framework is not resolving the policy driven bank runs that are forcing small businesses that are the big uninsured folks who can move quickly to pull their money out of, you know, banks that are in the headlines. And and that's why I say, you know, bring TLGP back and this will be resolved because as long as those small businesses know that their deposit, their transactional deposits are going to be safe, then there is no reason to quickly move your money from one bank into the other. And that really is the problem that exists right now. Uh, thank you, Bob. Does anyone have anything to add? Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that using Pacific West as an example. So uh, yesterday, Pacific West price declined by about 30%. That's a pretty big decline. But if you look at their earnings presentations, they'll actually show you that over the past month, their deposits have actually stabilized and slightly increased. So in their presentation, 
they'll tell you that they had a lot of deposits, specifically VC deposits, leave in March. And then afterwards, the panic faded and deposits began to come back. So it was a sign that it was stabilizing. And many other regional banks noted the same thing. But suddenly, yesterday, their stock price declined by 30%. There's some good reporting by Eric Wallerstein of Wall Street Journal suggesting that, you know, suddenly there was $200,000, 200,000 put options put on it. So it could be some sort of speculative attack. And as we know, sometimes price shapes narrative and someone uh, who banks with that bank could easily see the stock price and panic in an otherwise fine bank uh, could be ruined as, as Bob was noting. It does seem that the administration is aware of things like that. And the Fed and the Treasury have basically de facto guaranteed deposits. So I think it's hard to know if there's actually an underlying run happening. All we saw was the price. We don't actually know if there were actually deposit flows. I mean, if you are a business, seeing that everything else was guaranteed by by the administration and the Fed, it would seem like you would be more uh, less inclined to panic. But I agree that we really need something a bit more stronger, like Bob suggested uh, to 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 put this completely to rest. Thank you, Joseph. So, Jem, you just yesterday appeared on Power Lunch and briefly touched on regional bank nervousness. Now, based on Joseph's comments on put option and panic, you said, quote, the reality is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If there's a run, there's a run. It can keep going. It's a function of time. It can get ugly. Then went on to comment on the Fed's role. Jim, how do you feel? Is there more banking turmoil to come? The reality is it's not about is there or is there not, right? It is a fat tail. And fat the more, tail. And the more. And the more there's a, a, a distinct uh, kind of fear of it, the more, especially in this world where, you know, with digitization, people can move money very quickly. You know, there's there's a 100% a, a significant risk there. Now, the question really is, can the Fed, you know, continue to get in front of this? What are their limitations? Um, can they backstop all regional banks? Um, you know, what you know? What is where is FDIC? You know, uh, in all this, and 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 you know, what political measures have to be you know agreed upon um, to to go that route? So they're, they're walking kind of this line. They don't want to go out and do all of this now, um, which means if it happens, they'll have to be pushed into the fray. Um, but the reality is, there's always a tail on banks. Banks, by definition, are a uh, you know have a massive leverage underneath the hood, and if things get bad, uh, it, it it gets worse, right? Uh, it, it has a momentum, negative momentum factor in there. So, um, to answer your question, yes, it's 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 entirely possible. Uh, markets have a way of forcing uh, the Fed's hand, uh, government officials' hands. Um, that said, doesn't mean it's going to happen today, tomorrow. This is kind of a rolling issue. I do think before this is all said and done, um, we will see a, a lot more um, kind of blood in that uh, in that world. But again, it could be we could be significantly higher. Uh, it could be months from now. Um, but unless they come out and proactively deal with it, eventually it is always a kind of gap to be filled in a kind of trader terminology. 
Can I can I chip in on on one big picture issue here and please yeah. pose pose the question to the panel? I mean, uh, and and please don't shoot the messenger here when I say this, but isn't all of this basically part of what the Fed is trying to engineer? Because in order to really uh, put the kibosh on inflation, they need to lower aggregate demand. To lower aggregate demand, you ultimately need to engineer a significant amount of job losses from the current um, record low unemployment rate. And so given the fact that we don't have a systemic banking crisis like 2008, and certainly we have a problem in the regional banks, and you know it's not a great result that it's obviously con forcing consolidation into the money centers, but at the end of the day, I keep hearing all of these podcasts with people expressing shock that, you know, this is going to cause credit contraction. And my response when I hear that is, that's what the Fed wants. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that. Uh, we can argue whether or not the, again, whether the cyclical reduction in demand that they're trying to shoot for is ultimately going to solve the bigger problem. But but yes, I agree with you that, uh, you know, particularly taking the air out of tech um, and, and growth and, uh, you know, leading to uh, more more job losses uh, there and credit contraction would, would be a goal. The question is, again, about distribution. They, what they don't want is a, a liquidation. They, they don't want a vol event um, uh, amidst all of that, I would argue. Um, and so, is this the way that you're going to do it? Um, uh, there, there's other ways to probably get better, uh, more, more linear effects to credit contraction. Bob, I see your hand there. We'd love to hear your comments here, and then I'm going to move on to a question for last. Yeah, I, I think um, the idea, like, does the Fed want to create a slowing of credit as an instrument to cool the overall economy, given frankly, the big picture narrative is at the big picture macro level, they actually haven't made that much progress on asset prices, unemployment, or nominal growth or inflation. Absolutely. The question is, do you do that in an orderly way or a disorderly way? Um, and doing it in a disorderly way has a lot of second and third order consequences, consequences which are undesirable and does create the risk like, you know, is is any one of these little banks like PacWest or Western Alliance or whatever, none of them are uh, systemically important in, in and of themselves, though the question is, if not managed effectively in the way that I described, you do actually have a risk of a big set of moves out of uh, out of the regional and 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 small banks. And, you know, if you talk to entrepreneurs running businesses with, you know, 10 to 50 people, like it's amazing how many of them are sitting there trying to figure out how to get banked by systemically important banking institutions in one form or another and figuring out, you know, ways to transfer money into those banks. And if that became, you know, small banks, small banks in general are, you know, like a third of the overall credit system. And so you could have a meaningful risk that's bigger than any specific bank if they let this continue to spiral along, which is why, you know, it, it's a challenging thing. They need to tighten monetary policy or they need to keep 
monetary policy tight to deal with the macro circumstances, and they need to make sure that there isn't a systemic bank run. And in some ways, those two things cut against each other. But really what it is, is that there's different appropriate policy that is the best policy given the circumstances to ensure financial stability and also to resolve the macroeconomic uh, dynamics that are out there. And, 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 and that's, you know, that's a bit nuanced, uh, but that's, you know, the reality of the challenge that the Fed faces, given the fact that they have all three of those issues, employment, inflation and financial stability to manage at any given point. Thank you, Bob. So moving on here, I do want to keep touching on this topic of banks. Now, last bear in your recent piece, The Last of First Republic, brilliant, brilliant title, by the way, you dove into the details of FRC's situation just days prior to their failure. This week, you posted a tweet regarding the bank crisis fears, citing key differences between this current situation and 2008. And that one cannot be a doomer and they cannot be an all clear evangelist. Now, last bear, can you touch on those and on what you meant by we need to pay attention to the interplay between rates and bank capital? Yeah, so I, I think it's like uh, that was probably more reaction just to I think how online discourse tends to go where, you know, things are, are one, one extreme or the other. And oftentimes they're somewhere the reality somewhere in the middle and requires a little bit more nuance than that. So we're, this time is, is not 2008, it's, it's 2023. And so it's, it's going to be different in a number of ways. So the large, um, you know, systemic banks are in a much better, better capital position, obviously have the ability to, as we've seen with JP Morgan, to actually, you know, potentially advantage from, from the situation. But at the same time, um, you do have a large amount of concern across uh, banks that don't have those same stringent capital requirements and who've seen um, their liquidity and deposits start to roll over in the past year in a way that is very atypical for, for banks. Um, if you look in aggregate for, for deposits to be falling the way that they are um, at the same time that these banks are dealing with, um, you know, rapid change to the interest rate policy where like, you know, in the case of first Republic um, you know, they were able to, to manage, 50, 57% deposit withdrawals um, via borrowing um, through the Fed's facilities, um, and federal home loan banks and, and whatnot. They, they met that request, but basically destroyed their balance sheet in the process because of how expensive that new, you know, that new financing was. And in order to get rid of the financing, they would need to sell their assets, which happened to be underwater, as are most fixed rate bank assets at this point, given given where the rate hikes are. Um, and I think that that we're at the point where you can't argue that monetary policy and financial stability aren't in some way in, in conflict. And I think they're directly in conflict. Um, the reason why um, bank assets are being impaired is because of interest rates, not credit losses. Um, and the reason why deposits are, are falling is because of QT. Um, and so it's just we're at a point where I think somebody I think Bob mentioned it earlier, and I agree with this, um, you know, where this is very much a policy driven situation that we find ourselves in, in my in my perspective. And therefore, um, I think it's going to weigh 
heavily on, on the Fed's decision. And I think it should weigh heavily on the Fed's decision um, because they're, they really are in the driver's seat in a lot of these dynamics. Um, so it's definitely not the same as, as the last time. Um, it's not, you know, if you're saying that there's issues in the banking system that haven't been resolved and are likely to continue to play out, that doesn't mean that you're saying that the stock market's going to crash and that we're going to have some giant great recession. It's just noting um, what is a serious issue um, in an important, you know, in an important uh, industry and part of the economy and something that the Fed is particularly going to pay really close attention to. So I think that was the, the thrust of what I was trying to say. Thank you, Last Bear. Does anyone have any comments to Last Bear's response? You know, I, I think I'll make a note about so the asset, the asset declines in asset value on banks. I think that's a really good point, and it's been made widely that when the Fed hikes rates, yes, if you have a lot of fixed income securities or fixed income loans, your asset side decreases in market value. Um, but I'd also think that we should have to look at the life because rising rates has an impact on those as well. And now we commonly think of a bank as having, let's say, a lot of demand deposits funding its assets. Now, in theory, of course, everyone can go and take their money out of the bank anytime they want. It's like an overnight loan. But in practice, it, it really isn't. Now, if you think about something from your own perspective, let's say you have $5,000 in the bank. Every month you get uh, inflows from your direct deposit and you spend money. So 5000 plus or minus 1000 2000 something like that. But there's always some certain amount that you keep in that bank. In a sense, let's say that's 3000 You always have a minimum amount of 3000 in your bank account. In that sense, you're basically lending to the bank permanently $3,000. Or from the bank's perspective, it has a $3,000 liability that it never has to repay. So you can easily think about that as a longer-dated longer debt. So... When you hike rates, yes, your assets decline in value, but to the extent that you have these sticky deposits, these sticky core deposits, they also decline in their market value. And so, again, it doesn't necessarily make you insolvent or hurt your solvency position. Another way to think about this is that uh, these deposits, core, sticky, you don't really have to pay them very high rates. So as interest rates rise, your net interest margin on these assets increases. However, of course, as we all know, sometimes deposits that are thought to be sticky suddenly disappear and they're not sticky. And when you do that, everything that was modeled as longer dated becomes overnight. And if you have mark to market losses, your bank can go under. So a big part of a well-run bank is to make sure that your liabilities, your deposit franchise is modeled, so is managed so that you don't have these uh, sudden events. And as we saw, the banks that had these big events, they were not very good at this. In fact, they kind of uh, took in a lot of hot money related to things like speculative tech and, and so forth. So I'm a bit more positive about the regional banks in general. One way that I like to go about thinking about this is to actually hear what they say and see what's on their uh, earnings. And widely speaking, these regional banks are reporting pretty stable deposits. Now, this could all change if we have a speculative attack that shapes sentiment. But as of their earnings release a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I'm, I'm more constructive on all this than I think most people are. I, I just want to add, I think it's a great point that Joseph made around deposits. But I think that's why QT is really important here and it's not discussed nearly as much as it should be as an important monetary policy uh, position, because 
with QT lowering, you know, it's basically forcing you know, deposits stay there forever so long as you know, something doesn't force them out. And so it's reasonable to think of them as super long term, but QT is forcing them out. And so that's forcing a crystallization of, of you know, asset losses on, on the other side. So I think that that's a really important point where you have interest rates that are impacting the asset value. And then you have QT that is sort of forcing liquidation of it to some extent. I think that's an important distinction we don't talk enough about is this QT, uh, QE versus kind of interest rate policy. And I think one of the great challenges, is the Fed is really trying to affect labor cyclically by using kind of primarily interest rates as the mechanism with which to sap liquidity. They haven't acted on the QT uh, uh, as, you know, as many people have talked about nearly as much as we kind of had expected at first. And I think that uh, that's creating more uncertainty in a sense, because you're dealing with something with incredible lags and and multivariate effects uh, in the way of interest rate policy, as opposed to QT, QE, which really operate directly through the capital channel with much less of a lag to financial markets. Um, I think it will be very interesting, uh, given kind of some of this more economic lag and uncertainty uh, and effects of interest rates, if we actually start to see real QT, we really haven't yet, or at least combine liquidity reduction in any meaningful way when you throw the, the, the Treasury general account uh, into play. I think that's something that is not being talked about in, enough. We really haven't seen the effects of QT on this market yet. Um, and, you know, in particular, as we go into the debt ceiling, which nobody's really talked about yet, you know, there's, you know, everybody's talking about the debt ceiling, you know, the, the dollar and the potential issues related to the debt ceiling. I, I think there's an argument to be made here that not many people are making that ironically, the biggest problem for this market might actually be, um, you know, us resolving the debt ceiling crisis and the TGA having to be refilled um, afterwards. So just some interesting food for thought. But this this QT channel, um, you know, and, and general liquidity reduction from the capital side um, has not nearly been deployed enough. And, and if and when it actually does, uh, which might be coming in the near future, um, you could really start to see some different type of market reactions. Bob, see your hand there, man, and then I'm going to pick on Jem a little bit more. Yeah, I think I think Jem is is pointing out just a really important lever where you know many of us are focused on the the interest rate path, whereas in many ways I think the Fed is uh, leaving a lot on the table by not using the QT lever more extensively and. Um, you know, it's important to recognize that how the QT lever, uh, you know, it involves the sale of bonds, but what that sale of bonds, what happens with that sale of bonds, or, or I'm sorry, of, of the uh, the sale of the bonds is that it forces others in the market to have to come up with the cash to buy the incremental bonds, which means it moves money out of typically riskier assets into bonds in order to to buy them as the Fed sells them. And that process has, as Jim says, a very direct impact on asset prices. And if you think about what what is the basic problem that the, U, the U.S. economy faces from the Fed's perspective today, nominal growth is too high. Why is nominal growth too high? Well, it's not a credit expansion. 
we don't have a typical credit-driven boom that many of us have seen over the course of the last couple of decades. We have an income boom. And so how do you start to, and that income boom is then leading to continued elevated nominal spending. And so how do you shift? What's the most direct way to shift that? It's not to try to slow credit creation. Credit creation is already slow. The banking system, credit creation, even before SVB was already 0% over the first quarter of the year, yet nominal growth was 7.5%. So we've got to figure out a different path to, to start to slow aggregate demand in the economy and asset prices are the way to do it. But so far, you know, stocks are at 4,100 like this, you know, it's, it's not that bad. They're down relatively minimally and up significantly from even a few years ago. And so if the Fed were to lean more on the QT lever, I actually think it would resolve a lot of these issues in the sense of it would start to bring risky asset prices down significantly, which would help curb demand and start to create that weakening of nominal spending, but it probably would lead to a rally in bonds as aggregate asset prices fell, which would help improve the liquidity and capital positions of many of these uh, financial institutions. And that would probably lead to a better outcome than what they're pursuing right now. Now, why they won't, I mean, maybe maybe uh, Fed guy has uh, some thoughts on why uh, they won't improve their why, why they won't lean more on the QT lever, but it doesn't make sense to me from a, from a policy perspective. I think I, I think their perspective is that QT is basically on autopilot, but, but I think we should take have some perspective right now. So the maximum QT we're doing is 95 billion a month. The maximum last time around was 50 billion. So I think from their perspective, they're already turbocharging their QT. Maybe it's not enough. And obviously, uh, they, they're not able to hit uh, their maximum target because of low prepayments and stuff like that. But I think there are also other things happening that could have an equivalent effect to Turbo QT in the pipeline. The first thing is that there's going to be more Treasury issuance. So we have the uh, Treasury's announcement today. It looks like they're going to have to revise up their coupon sizes soon. So one of the mechanisms of QT is increasing the amount of duration in the market. Looks like uh, Treasury will have to do that simply to fund higher deficit spending. And another thing that channel that QT works is by draining liquidity in the banking system. And as Jeb notes, once the debt ceiling passes, it looks like Treasury is going to have to issue a trillion dollars worth of bills. Part of that is likely going to be funded out of the liquidity in the banking sector. So you will have money coming out of the banking sector and going into the Treasury general account as it goes from its current level of about 230 billion to its target of about five or 600 billion. So we have some tightening coming out, coming down the pipeline. Don't know if it'll be enough, but, but it's coming. Perfect. Thank you both. Now we've got about eight or so minutes until FOMC release here. Uh, but I do, real quick, before we get to that, want to take a look at how 2006, the, the last time we had numerous rate hikes and then a pause, played out to see if the panel sees any similarities here. The situation today isn't directly comparable because inflation is much higher today than it was then and unemployment is lower. Moreover, that hiking cycle had been more gradual, giving officials more time to study the effects of their moves. If inflation was a nail, monetary policy was the hammer, according to Ben Bernanke. 
He said, we do not have to strike the nail, but we have to show that we are not putting down the hammer. We have to keep it in our hand. Jem, if you can, you know I'd love to get your thoughts on the volatility conditions now compared to what it was like the last hiking cycle in 2006. Jem, what are you looking for given that back then there was only the Fed statement back then? No dot plots, no pressers, no options-driven market, and a small, larger effect of zero DTE and a presser. Jem? Yeah, I mean, uh, we are in, in a very different vol world. I've mentioned this before. Uh, everybody's talking about the increase in zero DTE, but what very few people note uh, with, with as much importance is the dramatic reduction in vol volume after one zero DTE. We have a equal reduction in volume and, and hedging going on outside of zero DTE. Um, why is that happening? Uh, quite frankly, it hasn't worked for several years, right? This is a typical typical cyclical effect to, you know, people crowd into what's working uh, and, and then they crowd out. Um, and again, whether it's August 15 versus Feb 16, whether it's uh, February 18 Volpocalypse versus Ocnov Dees 2018 slow decline, you, you have an ebb and flow, a vol reaction uh, relative to market uh, that, that is almost like a sine curve as people pile in and pile out. And we're in the kind of generally pile out uh, part of that. People still want to hedge, um, but they're afraid to, you know, that the, that the vol is not going to help them in the next decline, much like uh, we saw uh, happen this last time around. So I think that's an important kind of dynamic. Uh, we have, however, in the context of that, seen significant also reductions in liquidity, um, you know, with higher interest rates working through the markets. Um, broadly, uh, you know, there is, is you know, per amount of volume, there is there is less um, liquidity. So um, that's also a broad risk. And then you take a zero DT options uh, and, and and the you know potential crowding into positions long or short um, there and, and the circular powerful effects of gamma that can happen in the short term there. And it really is a combustible situation. And I think that's the important part to note. We are, you know, this is not your grandfather's vol market. Uh, these are not, uh, you know, everything is much more dynamic, much more, uh, you know, crowded with less liquidity. Um, that all said, in the very short term, um, you know, we are seeing a significant increase in skew um, in, uh, in equity vol relative to where it was just a month or two ago with the increase of this, you know, uh, banking crisis. Um, we are also seeing lower vol, um, as many have seen, which has led to even higher skew, generally kind of inside baseball. But when implied volatility comes down, skew tends to, to increase the downside options versus the upside tends to get more expensive. That has a reflexive, supportive effect. So not only has lower implied vol helped to, to pin markets a bit, um, you know, because it's well supplied at, at cheaper levels, but that higher skew drives that kind of vana and charm effect. So we're seeing some short-term supportive effects in the context of what is increasingly becoming a much more fragile system. So um, I do think uh, reflexively going into this, assuming, you know, the risk is 
more to the upside if the Fed is uh, apparently, you know, dovish. Um, you know, there are structural effects that that uh, that could push things higher. But ultimately, I think, a, uh, as I've mentioned on other platforms, if you know, if we do get that here in the months to come, that could ultimately be the thing that unpins this market ultimately it opens up kind of that real structural risk that we're seeing in terms of the fragility of markets. Thank you, Jim. Now we've got about three minutes until release here, but before we get there and, and sorry if we interrupt just to drop the, the rate hike, et cetera, but Bob, are things, as Jim said, more combustible? You have a great Twitter thread on the topic of the debt ceiling, outlining the importance of timing with the ongoing debt ceiling debate. Is this the powder keg, given Yellen said we have until June 1st, which is only in 10 legislative days from now in Congress? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in many ways, the debt ceiling is sort of, uh, you know, it, it's certainly reflective of the difficulty of this cycle, particularly from a policymaking standpoint, you know, that cycle, if anything, is a policy problem more than anything, right? It's a self-induced policy issue. Um, I would just recognize that the speech, you know, the, the June 1st number that um, that Yellen put out is more likely political speech than it is, uh, than it is a matter of, uh, of technical accuracy, accuracy. I think most people who pencil out the numbers see the, the Treasury being able to get through the June 15th and June 30th dates, or if they trip it just right there, it would only be you know a few days of pause before more extraordinary measures could be applied at the end of June. And so odds are we're looking at you know a really acute moment coming uh, in, later in in July and August. And if anything, I think that that creates some some challenge because of kind of uh, the, the Treasury is saying it's June 1st and everyone's kind of looking at each other and saying, eh, but not really. And so that creates uh, the opportunity to sort of not move as swiftly as is necessary to resolve this quickly. So my guess is that the debt ceiling dynamic and it's sort of, you know, ortho orthogonal issues uh, and impacts on asset markets and the economy are going to be sort of hanging over our head unresolved for a couple of months further, which is uh, which is annoying to deal with since, you know, that's more a matter of the political realm than it is the macroeconomic realm. Thank you, Bob. One minute until release. Does anybody have any comments to Bob's response? Maybe last bear or Michael. I could also say, as we're waiting our one minute, is that the odds that the even if we get there and this isn't resolved, the, the U.S. is not going to default. Uh, the the administration had a dry run back in 2011 or Treasury did to prioritize payments. That's the most likely outcome is a prioritization that maintains the continued payment of bonds and bills as is necessary. And probably a few other areas like the military. Uh, through that prioritization. So, you know, people saying, oh, the U.S. is going to immediately default. No, that's definitely not uh, not a base case or even a probable case. What is much more likely is we'll see a circumstance where um, prioritization happens, which would then create a big cut in fiscal spending, which would create a negative growth shock and likely see 
uh, a rally in U.S. Treasuries, counterintuitive rally in U.S. Treasuries, as well as rally in the dollar in response to that dynamic, a big negative growth shock. All right, we've got our press, we've got our release, right? I've, I've talked to the, that we to the do. <laughs> hey, you tied us right over, Bob. Thank you. So it looks like we got the expected 25 bips, a little, for lack of a better word, volatility in SPY as people start to digest. So I'm curious, as we kind of digest the release here on some of the initial reactions to this 25 bips, I'm assuming this is basically what was expected by all of you. So it bears to question... Do we feel, as we discussed earlier, that this will be the final hike before the pause? I mean, they dropped the uh, the um, anticipates more policy firming to attain a sufficiently restrictive stance. So, you know, on the margin, that is uh, indicating a desire uh, or a, a possibility of pausing. Yeah, I think this is. I think I think it's a pause. That's that's my guess. Call it the classic dovish hike here. <laughs> and and actually, to to your point there, Bob. In fact, in two thousand six, they did that same thing um, by officials deciding to signal a possible pause by dropping from their June policy statement uh, the line that quote some further policy firming may yet be needed, uh, and then paused. So does anybody have any other initial comments here before we we continue down our previous line of thought? Well, I, I, the one thing I'd say about this is, um, you know, there's a challenge that that is I, I've described this a few months ago as a race between, you know, inflation entrenchment and uh, and they're and they're tightening sufficiently to bring, you know, to, to slow the economy. Um, the idea that they might you know, given the hikes that they've done, that they might, you know, take a beat, uh, RBA style and, uh, and, you know, take in some incremental data before making the next move, you know, I think is, is, um, more dovish than, you know, if I was running, uh, the fed, but, um, but also within the realm of, of reasonable, I think the main question, the main question and, and maybe Joseph can give some perspective on is, is whether or not they will feel constrained on a forward looking basis uh, by their choice to pause this month in terms of uh, uh, further raising interest rates in the event that, uh, you know, the macroeconomic conditions warrant it. Yeah, and we, and we can definitely touch on that a bit more, too. Michael, I see you unmuted there. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, you cannot underestimate um, OPEC Plus's motives here. Um, I, th I have a strong suspicion that the April CPI is going to run hot uh, as it captures that spike. And then the question is, when it starts capturing the subsequent downdraft, does OPEC Plus move again um, as, they, as MBS likely wants to exert pressure um on on this administration so i like that michael references opec i think something that 
that we should keep in mind is that there are a lot of geopolitical risks. Like what stood out to me was this morning, apparently Russia is reporting a, uh, an assassination attempt on uh, President Putin. Now, I don't know if, if that's actually true or not, but you know, that, that's a pretext and that to do something potentially. And it, it's an escalation of geopolitical tensions and war is really inflationary. So you have these big events happening across the world that, that will definitely spill over to, to what's happening here. All right, so I want to actually last bear. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add that obviously QT remains remains on schedule, uh, no changes, which I think is uh, everyone's expectation. But um, since I say we don't talk about it enough, just wanted to add that point as well. Thank you, last bear. So I'm just going to take a quick little tangent. We've got 25 minutes before Powell's presser. But as a quick little tangent here, kind of going back to the Treasury buyback conversation, Joseph, traders are, you know, they're getting more worried about the debt ceiling deadline, especially after Yellen gave that June 1st as the default date. Yields on three-month T-bills are now the highest relative to two-year rates since 1981. So, Joseph, are Yellen's concerns warranted here? And moreover, the TGA, or Treasury cash balance, has drained by about $78 billion on May 1st. And now there's only $238.46 billion until it's over and we face default. So, Joseph, is this related to Yellen's comments? And could you also maybe walk us through the buyback mechanisms? Yeah, sure. So, I'm, I'm in agreement with Bob. I am thinking that you know the US is not going to default because the Fed has the tools and the mandate to prevent it. So I'm super complacent about the debt ceiling. So right if the Treasury were to default, there's some serious financial stability concerns. The Fed, part of its mandate is to prevent financial instability. And so what it will likely do, and which we found out through those subpoena documents from a report from the House Financial Services Committee, was that the Fed would prioritize payments, as Bob suggested. So every day the Treasury takes in cash receipts and it spends money on things like interest rate payments and missiles and Social Security and so forth. It has a lot of money coming in, more than enough to cover interest rate payments. So there's really no chance of a default. I think the point about Treasury buybacks, Nick, you mentioned, opens up the possibility of even more creative ways of handling the debt ceiling. Um, one of one really interesting idea that Steve Moran mentioned to me would be uh, treasury buybacks as a way to actually extend the debt ceiling. Now, this is not something they're saying they're going to do, but but it is a potential tool, and I'll explain how this could work. Um, the treasury debt ceiling, as, as we know, the treasury can only issue so much debt. Afterwards, after it hits the ceiling, it can't issue any more. But that limit is on the power value of the debt and not the market value. And an interesting thing that's happened over the past uh, year or so was that because of rapid rate rises, the market value of the debt is a lot lower than the par value for a lot of outstanding treasuries. So if you wanted to do a buyback program, you could issue stuff at par and then go and buy back stuff that's trading below par, and you would actually create a lot of room under the debt ceiling. Not saying that they're going to do this. They have no indication that they will. Um, but again, this is just one of a, among, I'm sure, many other things that the administration could do if they really wanted to. Uh, to find more headroom under the, the debt ceiling. So there's just a lot of ways to get around this. I, I don't really worry about that. Totally agree with Bob's assessment that Yellen is probably putting political pressure on 
one of the things that we've also learned from the uh, House Financial Services report that I cited was that Powell doesn't like to talk about solutions to the debt ceiling from his end because he likes there to be political pressure to force uh, some kind of con congressional resolution. So I think this is definitely part of the game. Thank you, Joseph. And I'll definitely move over to the panel here in a moment to get some other thoughts. But Joseph gave me a really good segue here to a question I had for Last Bear regarding these, you know, creative ways to supersede the issue with the debt ceiling. So Last Bear, in your January issue, $1 bond and the platinum coin, you discuss a few methods of circumventing this debt ceiling issue. The $1 bond, which you said was conceptually attractive, practically infeasible, and the platinum coin, which you noted could grant the executive branch much more power than it should have. So, Last Bear, could you walk us through what you feel to be the best solution? Well, I think the best solution would be to raise the debt ceiling. And I think in between that and, and those two options that you picked, the, the option that Joseph just laid out about straight buybacks on basically longer term debt um, that's trading at a discount to par would make more sense than either of those two more creative solutions. Um, but I, in concept, the, the dollar bond um, is, is a similar sort of um, financial engineering type type method to basically use a, a lower par value, but give the same economic um, interest out um, through large interest payments. Um, but I don't think it's you know, practically very feasible, even though it's kind of a cool idea. Um, and then the other one that I think you know, gets more discussion is sort of the, the platinum coin, which is basically the idea that the, the, the treasury can um, mint a platinum coin of, of any denomination. There isn't a strict um, cap in, in the legal rules on what that can be. Um, so basically, uh, you know, could could make a coin that would allow them to basically put funds directly into their own um, treasury general account, thereby avoiding the need to uh, increase, you know, increase debt securities outstanding or, or pass the public debt outstanding and be able to sort of fund themselves directly um, through this coinage minting, um, which I think some people have advocated for, I think, would basically give um, the executive branch and the treasury uh, the power of base money creation, which is currently um, the, our, our system is set up so that that's the Fed's responsibility and the Fed has the responsibility over price stability and, and general economic conditions um, and therefore has the power of sort of base money creation to sort of target what they, you know, how they want to achieve those goals. And I would be concerned about um, a situation in which the treasury is therefore sort of unrestricted um, in their ability to sort of create new money um, and therefore sort of taking that, those monetary powers out of the hands of the Fed. So that's, that's my big conceptual um, problem with, with that uh, solution that some people have argued for. Um, realistically, I don't think that either of those solutions are, are in any way likely. Um, and I actually think that you know, the, the buyback solution, solution that uh, Joseph mentioned or just sort of some sort of you know, new intervention, whether it be um, effectively the Fed allowing the Treasury to overdraft or prioritization of payments, all those things seem much more feasible than some of the more unique proposals. Thank you, Lasper. Does anybody have anything to add to that or to anything anyone else on the panel has said so far about the debt ceiling situation? So a question I would have here then, and this will go to the entire panel. Uh, feel free to chime in. 
One last final question to the panel as a whole here. Bill Ackman has said that I reiterate the following. When MMF rates hit 5% on Thursday, who is not going to take their deposits out of their local bank? Do we think that the Fed screwed up here? And do we think Bill Ackman, a man famous for many reasons, is correct to say the Fed should have paused earlier? I guess if I was a big asset manager, I would also be finding all sorts of reasons for the Fed to cut rates. Um, but I think that that actually misunderstands how, how the banking system or how the money fund system works as well. So if so, some people are really rate sensitive and they'll take money out of a bank and put it in a money fund for higher yields. But there are vast majorities of depositors who really don't care. And that's why across the cycle, you can see that even as the Fed funds rates goes to 4 or 5%, as it has in past cycles before GFC, you can see deposit rates still stay really low. Um, there's a lot of reasons to think about this. One is that most people don't even have that much money or don't even care. Another way to think about this is that banks provide services to people that are valued from beyond just deposits. So you can think about a bank providing payroll services to, uh, to a corporation. Let's say a corporation has 50 people. Bank needs to make direct deposits every twice or twice a month. Well, that's a service, too, that the bank is offering. So instead of perhaps paying higher interest rates to a corporation, the corporation receives these services. There's a lot of, way, a lot of relationship ways to, to um, offer value beyond rates. And another note is that if you take money out of a bank and you put it in a money market fund, that doesn't actually take money out of the banking system. Then the money market fund has a deposit at the bank and it could uh, simply lend to someone else in the banking system. It could buy a treasury and then the treasury spends, spends that money back into the banking system. Or it could invest in a reverse repo facility. And in that case, money really does leave the banking system. But so far, that amount has been pretty range bound. So uh, I think that line of thinking is is not accurate. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, that Joseph raised, one that I've mentioned a number of times, that it's not strictly a question of rates. It's really about how the reverse repo facility ties in with money market funds that actually removes cash liquidity out of the banking system. And I do think that that is a um, you know significant issue that we still don't really have a lot of resolution as to um, you know, some of the ideas around a, a big bill issuance to help try to drain those balances um, could work, um, could help sort of address that. But I think that's a big question is how are they, how are they going to channel money out of the reverse repo facility back in, into sort of the banks? And it's not as simple as, as Joseph mentioned, you know, it's not as simple as just looking at deposit rates versus uh, money market rates. Any other comments there to what Joseph and Last Bear said before I move on to the next question? All right, so we have time here for one more panel-wide question, and feel free to expound. We've got about 14 minutes before Powell's Presser, which we will be streaming audio here uh, on the space and the video itself on the Unusual Whales Twitch channel. But for this question, given the 2006 language and pause, what do we think is in the future for the markets? Uh, Bob, want to start here on this question, and then we can move over to the panel as a whole before closing statements. It looks like Bob is having connection issues again, actually. So let's start with Jem here, and we'll move down the line. 
I apologize. I'm going to have you repeat that because I actually was, no was involved in a trade over here. On, on uh, can you, you mind re, re uh, iterating? Yeah, for sure. I've been fighting the urge this whole time as well, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, given the 2006 language and pause, what do we think is in the future for the markets? Um, yeah, I mean, the reality is um, this. You have a you have a slow moving removal of liquidity um, that is likely to kind of you know work its way through the the bow constrictor uh, or the python. The uh, in in the meantime, positioning is still relatively short or unallocated. Uh, vol dynamics are are very much uh, supportive still in the short term um, until we get past the debt ceiling. Um, you know, issue. Um, I, I think liquidity situations uh, in terms of direct capital um, are still relatively strong. Uh, they're not, you know, the QT isn't really acting, uh, you know, combined with the TJ uh, on the markets. Um, so the path of least resistance is uh, sideways to up um, in the very short term. That said, the further we go, the more these, uh, this is like stretching a rubber band, both in, times, in terms of time and, and direction. If we get a, a bigger move the upside, that should eventually shake positioning from kind of some of that short positioning. It should unpin volatility and potentially cause a bigger issue. Um, that combined with just simply the, the lag of, of monetary, you know, of, of interest rates moving through the economy and the markets paired with the eventual moving past debt ceiling um, and the TGA, uh, you know, effects that, that Joseph so, so uh, well, well described um, combined to a very interesting back half of the year. So it's really this uh, in the short term kind of supportive uh, circumstance um, uh, involve compressing circumstance uh, while uh, really shifting into the back half of the year, particularly if we go higher, the sooner we go higher, the quicker and more accelerated it can make the, the circumstances. So kind of as a follow-up here to the panel before we get to closing thoughts going into the presser, uh, based on what Jem just said, do we think that the markets may be a little optimistic right now? I know Jem has talked in the past and quite recently about how the effects of the Fed are kind of lagging and we see this this differential between, you know, stocks are kind of up right now comparatively to how policies are taking effect. So my question to the panel, feel free anybody to chime in. Are the markets being overly optimistic and do we have some turmoil on the horizon? I'll chime in. I mean, I'll just say that, you know, given given if if you asked me last year where the where the S and P would be given, you know, given the knowledge that the Fed would embark on this aggressive of a ramp, and especially given starting valuations, um, I'm I'm pretty shocked at where we are, um, and so I, I think there's, I I still think for one that there is a large amount of complacency priced into risk assets that are expecting the Fed to fold just like they've done the last several decades. If you think about, I go back to a space that I participated in, I don't know, a couple of months ago when Cameron Dawson posted a chart, which it's just been emblazoned in my brain, which basically shows 
essentially the core PCE since 1995 and or, or 1990, I should say, right? And it's basically been in this very, very narrow corridor of call it zero to two percent until now, where it's spiked to five percent. Now let's think about what's happened over the over that period of time. You've had the tequila crisis of '94. You've had the LTCM Russian default of 1998. You had the G. You had the Internet uh, dot com bust. You had the GFC. You had COVID. And every single time, the Fed was able to paper over the crisis with monetary. Uh, with massive stimulus and not have any repercussions. It's different this time. So I do think that we are in for a uh, higher for longer phase that the markets are not ready for, or not pricing in, I should say. Thank you, Last Bear. Michael, I see you unmuted, and then I want to kick over to Bob here before we move into the presser. That was me. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I think you had us reverse on that one, um, but I'm happy to, to take credit for Michael's smart thoughts. Um, oh, I did get um, that backwards. Didn't I? <laughs> no, no, no worries. Um, I would, I would just add in, in terms of the market dynamics. I'm actually pretty interested in corporate earnings um, these days. It's been basically flat for the past year, but hasn't yet decidedly sort of tipped over in one way or the other. Um, revenues are still growing pretty solidly. Um, obviously, some of that is driven by by inflation, but the S&P is a, a nominal measurement. Um, so you, you have strong revenue growth continuing. And, and so far, margins have come down a, a, a touch, but have basically kept overall earnings flat between those two dynamics. And it's unclear to me whether um, corporations are, you know, whether earnings are, are set to start to fall, in which case I'd be much more concerned about um, valuation levels um, or whether corporations, just given um, the years of being able to refinance at low rates, um, enjoy a, a ton of new revenue um, and margin expansion, I, I think are in pretty decent position, generally speaking. And so if they're able to sort of if they aren't as as affected by sort of the monetary conditions and are able to continue to sort of hold earnings at the levels they are, I think that provides support through the market um, as we sort of figure out what's what's to come on sort of the bigger picture macro horizon. So um, I just wanted to add to that point, um, but that's that's it for me. Thank you, Last Bear. And sorry for that mix-up again. I don't know what's going on. Maybe I was a little distracted watching that spy chart chop around here. So what I want to do now, got about seven minutes to the presser. I just kind of want to go down the line and get everybody's final thoughts on the markets, on the debt ceiling debate, anything you want to add here. And also, please, please plug anything you're working on, anything that our lovely audience here should check out to keep learning from you folks. I, I can't emphasize enough that everybody up here on this panel is invaluable when keeping an eye on these macro topics. So let's start here with Bob, any final thoughts here on the markets, the debt ceiling debate, the treasury, uh, and anything you want to plug, Bob? Sure thing. Uh, sorry about the technical issues for a little bit. But uh, the main the main thing I'm looking to the presser for, you know, because the, the statement and the policy change are largely in line with our expectations. So the main thing I'm looking for is, is there nuance in the prioritization of the various issues that the Fed faces, whether that's uh, matters of financial stability relative to inflation, relative to, I guess, the initial inklings of a moderation in growth. Uh, and so what? where are they tilting in one direction or another? Um, that's what we're really looking to the presser for, for that bit of qualitative 
color. We may not get it, but that's what we'll be looking for. I think, uh, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. And, uh, love being on these spaces. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, definitely check me out on Twitter. I'm very active there. Uh, or you can check out, uh, you know, my day job, unlimitedfunds.com. Uh, I'm the PM of the HFND ETF, which you should uh, check out to see if it's uh, appropriate for you. Thanks so much for having me. Definitely go check that out, folks. And thanks, as always, for coming, Bob. Joseph, any final thoughts here and anything you got coming out or just came out that you want to plug, send some of these folks into some learning lands? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to join these spaces. So what I'm looking for today at the conference is whether or not Chair Powell will more forcefully iterate that he want, he doesn't want to cut rates throughout the rest of the year. Again, when you have rate cuts priced in, that kind of makes their job more difficult because then you have, uh, let's say, mortgage rates staying low or coming lower, which potentially accelerates activity in that sector and other interest rate sensitive sectors. I agree with Bob's assessment that the economy is, is you know, it's doing fine. And Jim's view that inflation is probably secular. So I think the market is seriously, seriously mispricing how the path of policy and should the market eventually price in and become more in line with what the Fed is projecting, then we could see more volatility and downside in risk assets. Um, so I actually started a YouTube channel. It's it's on YouTube. You can just Google. It's my name. And every week I post videos about my thoughts on the markets. And I also post a debrief about what I think about uh, about this FOMC meeting. So check it out. It's Joseph Wang is the channel. And thanks so much for inviting me again. Thanks as always for coming, Joseph. These spaces would not be the same without you and your Fed outlook. Thank you. Jim, anything to add here before we get to that presser and anything you want to plug? Um. You know, first and foremost, uh, you know, this next couple of months uh, heading in uh, to the debt ceiling um, are particularly interesting, uh, given the tail risks tied to that, at least perceived tail risks tied to that. Pairing that with the perceived tail risks uh, of, of in the banking uh, sector, um, I think it's what it's on net done is it's really shaken some of, of the uh you know the federal reserve board's members enough to really um you know to really take a pause um i don't think you know again just based on month and a half two months ago's uh you know comments and where we were like uh you know we've moved significantly off of uh, aggressive kind of fed uh call selling um, and so, you know, this does represent a meaningful change in posture um, in the short term. I do believe that's a, it's a uh, it's going to end up being a mistake uh, that it is a short term kind of reactionary uh, move on policy that is not looking at the big picture. Um, but I do think that will help exacerbate some of this short positioning and potentially squeeze it in the short term and eventually be, uh, you know, the thing that that underpins uh, that eventual vol move and more systemic problem uh, as we move through into the back half of the year. So really some things to kind of watch and think about as we move through time here. Time is such an important aspect given the lag, given positioning, um, et cetera. So, so definitely keep all of that uh, top of mind here in the short term. And then lastly, uh, you know, we have uh, several hedge funds, all non-correlated. They really 
do focus on uh, not not market beta, just long term diversified kind of uh, return focus. Um, we are launching a macro vol, a macro product, um, as well as uh, recently purchased a wealth advisory uh, service that focuses on this really non-correlated approach to investing. So anybody that's interested in that stuff, please reach out kaivolatility.com backslash news. Perfect. Thank you, Jim. And thank you as always for coming. Last bear, any final thoughts here? We've got about two minutes before the presser. No, just thanks for having me on this spaces. I think um, it, they're always fantastic. Um, the only point that I would add is just to watch for the treasury issuance that comes after the debt ceiling. Um, that's a lot of a lot of coin that needs to come out of either the banking system or potentially the reverse repo facility. Um, and that those liquidity dynamics um, have been kind of stable recently between the combinations of treasury funds and QT and, and whatnot, but they're about to get negative um, as, as soon as the debt ceiling is lifted. So something to keep an eye on. Um, otherwise, you can find me here on Twitter or on Substack. Um, and thanks, guys, for having me. Thanks, as always, for coming, Last Bear. Michael, any final thoughts here? About 35 seconds before the presser. Thanks for letting me join ad, uh, on an ad hoc basis. Um, I, as you guys probably know, I'm very interested in the intersection of macro uh, versus geopolitics. So what I've written at length on my substack, which is uh, urbancowboy.com. Uh, and and one, one, I'm probably going to write an update soon about how a higher for longer policy from the Fed could actually trigger a uh, Chinese yuan devaluation. Um, so thanks a lot again. Bye. Thank you, Michael. And thanks, everybody, for being on our panel today. Everybody in the audience, thank you for coming and listening to the knowledge these folks have to share. If you're not following them, please do ASAP. You're going to learn nothing but good things from these folks. We are going to stream the presser audio here. It's starting right about now. And we'll also have the live video on the Unusual Whales Twitch, twitch.tv slash Unusual Whales, if you want to watch the video with us, participate in the chat. Thanks again, everybody, for coming. Just give us a moment here while this presser starts up, and we'll get that audio running for you. <laughs>